take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 40. Hopefully you got a bulletin on your way in the door and you have a copy of the message notes for this morning as well. Today and each Sunday in December, we will be in a brand new Advent sermon series I'm calling Christmas Hits. Christmas Hits is a series where we'll be considering different songs about Christmas, different songs about the Advent of Jesus. Now, I'm using that term Advent, and I recognize a lot of times we don't know what that word Advent means. We're not familiar with it. We don't use it. So what does the term Advent mean? It simply means this, arrival, arrival. And so when we speak of the Advent of Jesus, when we speak of the Advent of the Messiah, we are speaking of his arrival. And really the Bible speaks of two Advents. The first Advent happened 2,000 years ago when Christ came to inaugurate his kingdom. The second Advent has yet to happen, but it will happen. And at the second Advent, he will consummate his kingdom. It's going to come and it will last forever and always. Now, there's a lot of times throughout the scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament that both Advents, the first Advent and the second Advent, are talked about. It's talked about in the Psalms and in songs and prophetic poems. And the Advent is really talked about for the original readers of the Bible whenever they were in a time of crisis, a time of difficulty, of hostility, of famine or war. In the midst of spiritual darkness, God would send a message through his prophets to give the good news that Messiah is coming, that a new kingdom is coming, that the arrival of Christ is coming. And the promise of Advent basically communicates this. Look at this next slide. This darkness will not last. Whatever darkness the people were going through, whatever oppression they were experiencing, whatever the the people of Israel were, were enduring through the hostilities of the other nations around them, there's going to be coming a Messiah, and the promise is this, This darkness will not last. In fact, can we just say that sentence together? This darkness will not last. Let's try it one more time, even louder. This darkness will not last. And I know some of you came in today with darkness. Some of you came in today with a sense of heaviness. And the promise of Advent, the promise of Christmas is this. This darkness will not last. This darkness will not last. And what you just witnessed during the scripture reading is that Daryl and Jennifer came forward and they lit the first candle of the Advent wreath. And the Advent wreath has been used for centuries by Christians all around the world as a sense of expectancy, a sense of anticipation. And so there are four Sundays in Advent. And so over these four Sundays in Advent, each of the four Candles around the Advent wreath will be lit until Christmas Eve at our candlelight service. The center candle, which is the candle of Christ, will be lit then. And so each time we come and each week and we light a candle, it's an, in anticipation and expectation of the arrival of Christ. And that's what we're remembering and that's what we are looking to. 
You know, as far as the series goes, I've called it Christmas Hits. Music has always been a big part of Christmas, right? We start playing Christmas music around the house. We start listening to Christmas songs. In fact, if you are a subscriber to a streaming service like Spotify or Apple Music, you can go find and and they will for you curate Christmas songs, Christmas playlists that you can listen to. But listen, long before Apple or Spotify ever put together Christmas playlists, there was another company that put together Christmas playlists. It was the Goodyear Tire Company, (laughs) believe it or not. Back in the 1960s and early 70s, the Goodyear Tire Company would release every year a new collection of Christmas songs. And all you had to do was purchase a set of tires and you got a free record. What a deal, huh? You could also buy the record at their stores. But for me growing up in the uh, early 1970s, it was actually these two Goodyear compilation records that were the soundtrack of my Christmas childhood. I sent these pictures to my siblings uh, this week, and we all kind of started getting a little nostalgic. Because when these two records showed up on the turntable, you knew it was Christmas time. This is what we listened to. But like I said earlier, not only did Goodyear provide a playlist, but Apple and Spotify provide playlists for your listening enjoyment as well. I looked up some playlists on Spotify. Here's some that you can find. Classical Christmas, Essential Christmas, Sentimental Christmas, Acoustic Christmas, Jazz Christmas, Soulful Christmas, Modern Country Christmas, Mariachi Christmas, Very Indie Christmas, Children's Christmas, and many, many more. All curated just for your listening enjoyment. I also looked up this week the top streamed Christmas songs in 2022, last December. And I looked them up, and here's some of the top stream, top 10 Christmas songs that were streamed last year. Andy Williams, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, Bing Crosby, White Christmas, Jingle Bell Rock by Bobby Helms, and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee. All one of the top streamed songs last year. What do you notice about these songs? They're old, they're older than me, and I'm older than dirt. These are old songs. But none of these were the top streamed song last year. The top streamed song streamed over one billion times. Anybody guess? Mariah Carey. Carey. All I want for Christmas is you. If this doesn't show us that our culture is in free fall, I don't know what else does. (laughs) Well, did you know that the lyrics uh, to Christmas songs are actually found in the Bible? There are Christmas hits in the Bible. And in our series through this month, we're going to be looking at songs in the Gospel of Luke primarily, but the one we're looking at today from Isaiah 40 that Daryl just read in the video, that's also referenced in the Gospel of Luke as well. And the theme of each of these songs is really this, in times of hopelessness, there is light. When things, when things seem dark, there, this darkness will not last. And here's why it's important for us to hear this message particularly in December of 2023. I read a study this week that was conducted this year by the Pew Research Center. Here's what the findings were. That most of Americans, four out of five Americans, are either very or somewhat pessimistic about the ethical and moral standards in our country. Would you agree with that? That you're pessimistic, perhaps very pessimistic about the ethical and the moral standards in our country, that's enough to make anybody hopeless when you see the moral decay and the ethical decline. Additionally, you add on top of that skyrocketing inflation, violent crime, out-of-control health care costs, multiple wars across the globe, 
all these crises can bring on a sense of hopelessness. And hopelessness really is fatal. Here's why hopelessness is such a big problem. If you think something is hopeless, for instance, if you think your marriage problems is hopeless, will you ever seek to find restoration? If you think your finances are out of control, control and hopeless, will you ever try to get out of debt? If you think that your, your addiction and overcoming an addiction, whatever that addiction may be, seems hopeless, will you ever pursue recovery? No. Hopelessness has a lingering effect. It, it also gives people a, almost an excuse for cynicism and rudeness, even violence. Hopelessness also produces in us what's been termed confirmation bias. You know what that is? If you see everything's hopeless, well, then you're looking for evidence to confirm your hopeless bias already, and it's just a spiral. On the other hand, hopefulness is actually very beneficial to us. Hopefulness changes everything. One study I read this week found that hopeful people are more productive people, and it makes sense. I mean, if you're hopeful, then you think what you're doing is gonna make an impact, it's gonna make a difference, so you're more productive. Hopeful people also are less affected by stress because they think things are going to get better down the road. Hopeful people are more compassionate. They care for the needs of others. In fact, there's actually physical benefits to being hopeful. Harvard Medicine did a research study in 2022 on 13,000 Americans to try to determine the impact, the effect of being a hopeful person. It doesn't just help your psyche, your emotions, it actually helps your physical well-being. Notice what they discovered. Harvard Medicine says that hopeful people have lower blood pressure, have fewer chronic health concerns, have a lower risk of cancer, and a lower risk of heart disease, just simply by being hopeful. And remember what I said. In the Bible, the promise of Advent, the promise of the arrival of Messiah came in some of the most dark and difficult times in the history of the world. And the promise was given so that people would have hope. And that's certainly the case for the one we're considering this morning in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Now you may be doing the math and thinking, okay, how can this be a Christmas song if it was written 700 years before Christmas? Well, this is the title of my sermon. It's a song of prophecy. It's a song of prediction. Isaiah is predicting under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the coming of Messiah, the first advent, and with that, the hope and the joy that that coming brings. And if you think about it, the hopeless situations that we may be facing today as individuals, as a nation, as the world, they are nothing in comparison to what the ancient Hebrews were experiencing then. They were in dire, dark situations. Again, as I said, this song is mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. It's there uh, being mentioned as a prediction, as a prophecy of John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist's job, his number one job? To announce the arrival of Messiah. What does arrival mean? Advent. That was John the Baptist. And so that's what this song is all about. So let's look at uh, verse 1. I'll just read the first sentence of verse 1 to begin with. 
It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The first thing I noticed when studying this passage was the repetition of the word comfort. And anytime you see a repeated word in the Bible, you need to take note of that. Comfort, comfort my people. Now, why the repetition of the word comfort? Well, you need to understand the literary context of Isaiah 40. It comes after Isaiah 1 through 39. And here's what the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are. Judgment. The justice of God being meted out upon the unrighteous and the idolatrous. And the judgment that was promised and prophesied in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is not just against Israel, but the prophecy was against other nations as well because of their idolatry, because of their cruelty. And so by the time you get to chapter 39, it's kind of like overload of judgment, of God's justice. Everything seems helpless. It's all doom and gloom. You turn the page to chapter 40, and then you hear these two words, comfort, comfort. And let me tell you, if you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, you would need some comfort. And Isaiah gives comfort. It's kind of like a a plot twist in the book of Isaiah. He continues in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. In other words, the sin is paid for. Your iniquity will be forgiven. War will be over. Again, this is a sudden and dramatic shift in the tone of the book of Isaiah. And in fact, the rest of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 through chapter 66 has this hopeful tone. And the big idea is this. Isaiah is letting the people of Israel know and letting us know that God's ultimate purpose in all these things is not judgment. It's not that God is cruel and vindictive and wants to manipulate people. You get to chapter 40 and beyond and you realize God's ultimate goal is salvation. Salvation from yourself salvation from sin, salvation from judgment. And as we move forward through these song lyrics here in chapter 40, I believe we'll see just that. In fact, there's three truths I want us to consider about this song of Christmas, this Christmas hit. The first one is this. Number one, when I am guilty, God's grace is greater. When I am guilty, and I am, God's grace is greater. Guilt is probably the number one drainer of hope in people. They just feel down. The process goes something like this. I messed up. I blew it. I feel bad. Those feelings begin to dictate my view of myself, my view of the world, my view of the future. I'm such an awful person. I'm so uh, reprobate. How could anything ever good come out of my life? And so the future can really be clouded by guilt. It's a bleak future. It's a hopeless future. And with this mindset that's prevalent, even among Christians, do you know what message we should play on repeat? Yes, you're guilty. But guess what? God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. You know, human nature doesn't change. Times have changed over the last 2,700 years since this was written. Certainly technology has changed, but human nature has not changed. When you mess up, you still feel guilt. 
and shame about mistakes. And so now more than ever, I believe we need to hear this song of Christmas, this Christmas hit. Look how the message continues to be communicated, beginning of verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What's that mean? This is just poetic language to say, get ready, God's coming. Get ready, here he comes. And I love the fact that he says this in verse four. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Do you know what song popped into my mind when I read that verse four? The old Marvin Gaye song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. You remember that one? Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to what? Keep me from getting to you, babe, right? That's what God's saying here. I'm going to remove every obstacle in the way for me to get my hope to you. What a great God we have. What a great salvation. And that's exactly what happened at Christmas. And Isaiah goes on to say this in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's he talking about, the glory of the Lord? We talk a lot about the glory of the Lord around here, don't we? The glory of God. What is that? I think the best explanation or definition for the glory of God, particularly from the Bible, is from the book of Exodus. And here's just a little preview for 2024. We're going to go into the Old Testament in 2024, and I'm going to preach through the whole book of Exodus in 2024, Lord willing. So get your seatbelts on for that journey. But in chapter 33... Moses comes to God on the, in prayer, and he says, God, show me your glory. And God says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, I can't show you my glory, otherwise you would be a cinder. You would be dust. It would be annihilating to you. But I'll do the next best thing. You can't see my glory, but go up on the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 34, notice what happens. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He says, you wanna know what about the glory of God? Here's the glory of God. Here's how I define my glory. I am faithful, I'm loving. I'm long-suffering and patient and kind. I'm compassionate. I'm forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the glory of God, the glory of God revealed. And God is all about his glory. That's the glory. It's not ultimately about judgment. The glory of God isn't ultimately about destruction. The glory of God is seen most manifestly in his grace, in his grace. And that's what makes God so glorious. And here's the thing, it's not a cheap grace. It's free, but it's not cheap. Because the judgment, the punishment that you and I deserve for our rebellion, for our guilt, he can give us his grace because he took the judgment we deserved and he laid it on his own son, Jesus. What that means, friends, is that you walked in here today and you walked in with a particular cloud of guilt 
of shame. The truth of the Bible is if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you from all unrighteousness. And you can walk out of this room liberated from that guilt because Christ took it for you. But God has love for you. God has a plan for you. God has a future for you. And listen, God has a hope for you. So the advent of Jesus is portrayed in these song lyrics. They're, it's so compelling. Again, the first one, though I have guilt for my sin, and it is legitimate guilt, God's grace is greater. Here's the second thing that gives hope from these Christmas song lyrics. Number two, when I am weak, God's word is stronger. Maybe you didn't walk in today feeling guilty. Maybe you walked in today just feeling weak, feeling weak. And this time of year can really sap the energy out of you. Am I right? (laughs) With all the hustle and bustle, with all the commercialism that we've created around this most holy holiday, maybe you can come in and you're, you're just weak. You're worn out. Maybe you've got a family member or a friend who has those experiences. Look at verse six through eight. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, if you think about it, flowers in the field and grass in your yard has a much shorter life expectancy than you do. All things being equal, we have the potential of 80, 90 years of life, right? A flower lasts in a couple weeks. And so it seems like there's no comparison. I mean, a couple weeks for a flower, eight decades for humans, until you compare it to eternity. You compare the length of life of a flower, the length of life of the oldest human, And eternity, well, the flower and the human look like they have about the same life expectancy. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. The grass withers. The flower fails. All flesh is grass. In other words, you're all going to die. You're not going to last long. That's kind of hopeless, isn't it? And why do you suppose the original readers of this account needed to hear this? Because if you go back to chapter 39, what you discover is that through some bonehead decisions of the king of Israel, the king of Judah, they were going to come under Babylonian captivity, and it happened. And so you're hearing you're about to be carted off to Babylon, and they were 900 miles away to northern Iraq in the desert. Who would want to go there, right? They're there. They're under hostility. They're under oppression. They're under slavery. And you get this message, well, all flesh is like Grass, it doesn't last. What does that mean? Not just you and me, but the kingdoms of this world. They will not last. The people of Israel could have seen Babylon and it looks like it's made of stone and iron. It'll never pass. Guess what? Is the Babylonian kingdom around anymore? No. The Egyptian kingdom, gone. Macedonian kingdom, gone. Babylonian kingdom, gone. Assyrian kingdom, gone. Roman Empire kingdom, gone. And one day the American kingdom, gone. All flesh is grass. But here's the promise. 
The word of the Lord remains forever. Long after all these kingdoms are just a footnote in history, God's word will still be true. And we can walk out of this room with hope because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. And maybe in your life right now, the promises of God may just kind of seem like a thin piece of paper in your Bible. But what you need to know is what that thin piece of paper represents, the eternal word of the Lord. Perhaps the crises you're facing in your life seem like an empire of stone and iron. They're all going to be gone. They're all going to fade. And this is a theme that is repeated throughout the scripture. These kingdoms of this world will not have the final word. Your sorrows, your tragedies, your crises, your catastrophes will not have the final word. Inflation, government corruption, layoffs at your company, it will not have the final word, friends. In fact, look at this next slide. God's promises outlast every problem. God's promises outlast every problem. And this is, again, repeated throughout Isaiah from here on out. Let me just show you one example. Towards the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, look at verse 17 of this everlasting impact of the word of God. He writes, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. There's coming a time because of the promise of God's word that the crises and catastrophes you're having right now will not even be a memory. They're going to be gone in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, look at verse 25 of the same chapter. Here's what the Lord says. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What a beautiful image of this wolf and lamb, predator and prey, eating together. But this is poetry. This isn't about animals. This is about sworn enemies. That with hostility, you could say, the elephant and the donkey will lie down together. Who would have thought? That there's going to be a time when these sharp differences that are created in our societies and in our culture, the hostility is over when the kingdoms of this world are gone and we are residing and enjoying the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Longtime enemies will live at peace. And just imagine that. Imagine a world with no more war. Imagine a world with no more injustice. Imagine a world with no more violence or abuse or people cutting you off on the interstate. Imagine that world. It's not pie in the sky, wishful thinking. It's as good as the word of God. And it's coming when Jesus returns and restores his creation to his original design before we corrupted it. And how do I know this? How can we be so confident about this? Look again at Isaiah 40, verse 8. The word of our God will stand forever. Friends, this is where history is going. There's a destination. There's an end game. God is in control. He is sovereign. And at the first advent, he inaugurated at Christmas. At the second advent, 
he will consummate it. In fact, look at this next slide. Christmas is not just about celebrating the birth of Jesus, but celebrating the purpose of the birth of Jesus. We don't just remember and reflect on the story of an unsuspecting maiden in Jerusalem on the backside of nowhere who was come upon her by the Holy Spirit and conceived miraculously in her womb and gave birth in a cattle stall in this less than ideal surroundings. Christmas is about the why of Christmas, the purpose of Christmas. Jesus came and was born in that cattle stall to become the sin bearer of our sin. Notice how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? Here's the purpose. Here's the why. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the why of Christmas. This is the why of the manger. This is the why of Advent, because we remember that Christ came to die in our place, to become sin for us, so that we could become righteous. This is the first Advent, which will all be culminated in the second Advent. And I want you to pay particular attention during this Christmas season of the, the Christian Christmas songs and how often they make mention of not just the first Advent, but the second Advent as well. Let me give you one example. The great song, Joy to the World, says this in the third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, that's the second Advent, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. The curse of sin that has been infecting this planet and infecting humanity so that humanity groans and is sorrowful, guess what? When he comes, his blessings are gonna flow. And the curse that has impacted this planet and the, the leaves and the trees and the rivers and the valleys and the streams and the mountains and all the animals, there is curse upon all of it right now. Creation is groaning in anticipation, like a woman in childbirth. When are you gonna come, Jesus? Why is creation groaning? Because creation inherently knows when Christ returns, psh, the curse is over. The curse is over. No more earthly thorns, no more human sorrows. How do we know this true? Again, the B-I-B-L-E, because the Bible tells me so. When I am weak, friends, God's word is stronger. But that leads to the third truth I want us to consider from this Christmas hit in Isaiah 40. Number three, when I am discouraged, God's devotion is deeper. When I am discouraged, you ever get discouraged? God's devotion towards me is deeper than any discouragement I could go through. Look at verse nine again. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, says, say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. This first phrase is where the, the song, go tell it on the mountain, comes from. But did you notice there's another repeated phrase here in verse 9? Herald of good news. 
herald of good news. Church, if we are not heralds of good news, we may as well shut the doors. That's what we've been called to do. Tell good news. It is good news of great joy. But look at verse 10. What's the good news? Behold, the Lord God comes. Let me stop right there. The Lord God comes. This is so crucial because it is only when God comes at that first advent that salvation can happen. It's only when God comes, the Lord Jesus Christ comes, that we can be forgiven. This is how hope comes. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, pretty hopeless. And God determines, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm coming. God shows up. He plunged himself into this lost world to save a lost people. You know, this time of the year, uh, as we shop for Christmas, it's a little different today. You know, back in the day before Amazon Prime and Walmart Plus, you actually had to go to stores to get your Christmas list, list filled, right? And so if you are a dad like me, it's always a good idea to take your kids Christmas shopping for your mom, for their mom, for your wife, right? And so if you're a parent of a single child, well, the Lord bless you. It's really no big deal, right? If you're taking two kids to the store to go shopping for mom, it's really not that bad. When you get up to the four and five kids territory like I'm in, it's a big deal. And invariably, you're at the store with your kids, and what happens to one of them? They get lost, right? That's not a good day for Christmas if you lose a child. You can come home and say, honey, look at the, the gifts the kids picked out for you. You like them? Well, unfortunately, we lost a child in the process. So if you are a father and it's you're, at a, you're at a store with your children, right, and you lose one of them, you are frantic. You search. You try to find them. Trent's up on top of the bike rack, right? And he's pedaling one up on the rack as a five-year-old. Am, uh, Amber would be hiding behind all the, the clothes on the clothes rack. Where's Amber? I don't know. And she's just hiding in there. This is what children do. But if you're a father, you go find your lost child. You seek hard. You search. You do whatever you've got to do to find your lost child. And look how verse 10 continues. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Stop right there. If we stopped right there, we could think, okay, I knew it was coming. Here's the other shoe. It's about to drop. God is coming with his strong arm, and he's about to bring judgment again. But notice verse 11. What is he going to do with his strong arm? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. See, that's God's end game. God's end game is not to shame you, but to save you. God's end game is not just to get you to behave, but to get you to become his child. How does that happen? You simply trust. You believe in what Christ has done in our place. You repent of your own sin, your own guilt. Yes, I am guilty. You admit that before God and you trust in Christ's sacrifice in your place. Because Jesus came not to give you religion, 
He came to give you himself. Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you. So let's bring this home. I want to close with the last three verses of Isaiah 40. We didn't read that, or Daryl didn't read that in the video, but I want us to consider the last three verses of this chapter. Very familiar to most of us. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Friends, with all of the hustle and bustle of this season, with all of the commercialism we've created around the celebration of the first advent of Christ, it can actually cause the opposite effect to what these verses are communicating. We don't increase in strength. We decrease in strength. We don't soar like eagles. We cluck around like chickens, right? But that's not the promise of God's word. So what is the motivating factor? What is the the fulcrum upon which this promise swings, it's this, rest in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Wait for the Lord. And this promise is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the second advent of Jesus that we anticipate, that we long for, that we look to. This is a promise of resurrection and renewal. This is a promise of an eternal future with him forever. And this is the key to hoping in the Lord because here's the deal. Don't put your hope in finances. Don't put your hope in interest rates. Don't put your hope in Bitcoin. Don't put your hope in your education and your degrees. Don't put your hope in government program. Friends, Hope in God. We're about to sing a song of response. And it's likely a new song for most of you. It's a song out of a publisher that we use a lot called Sovereign Grace. We're actually going to sing this song as the closing song of response all through the month of December. So in four weeks, you'll be very familiar with it. The song is called this, O Come, All You Unfaithful. Anybody here ever been unfaithful to the Lord? It's okay. I have. And the invitation is this. Oh, come, all you unfaithful. And what do we receive when we come? We find out that even though we may be guilty, his grace is greater. Even though we may be weak, his word is stronger. And even whenever I'm discouraged, his devotion to me With those stronger arms that tend his flock, his devotion is deeper. And that leads to my last thought. The key to hopeful living is to hope fully in the Lord.